Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Now that 2020 is behind you, it's time to grow. Organizations thriving in the face of uncertainty and who will emerge better are doing so by adapting quickly, pivoting to donor-centric fundraising, and building a bridge to connect supporters to their story. How can your nonprofit become nimble, innovative, and responsive like that? Learn how at the Responsive Nonprofit Summit. Join us April 14th and 15th, 2021 for the Responsive Nonprofit Summit, a free two-day virtual learning experience for forward-thinking nonprofit fundraisers and leaders like yourselves, hosted by Virtuous. This is not your typical virtual event. You'll be front row with world-class nonprofit and thought leaders, participate in hands-on, discussion-driven workshops during breakout sessions, and build lasting connections with like-minded peers. From the latest in fundraising and marketing to in-the-trenches case studies, Get the insights and connections you need to grow in 2021 and beyond. Register today to save your free seat at virtuous.org forward slash Rainmaker. Hi, welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Olson, and I'm joined today by my co-host and partner in crime, Roy Jones. We're really excited to be back in the studio today with Brady Josephson from Next After. He's a good friend and returning guest. And Brady, I think this might be our third conversation on the podcast together, if I'm not mistaken. I think it is. I think we split the first one into two. So it felt like one, but it was really two. Yeah, we did COVID and we did some fundraising testing, I think, before. And we'll link to those in the show notes so people can check them out. But today we're going to talk about a big new research project that, that you completed recently that resulted in, <clears throat> excuse me, in what you guys are calling the Global Online Fundraising Scorecard, which listeners can download for themselves at globalonlinefundraising.com. So uh, excited to talk about that. Brady, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So let's get right into it. Why did you guys conduct this study and what did you hope to learn from it? Yeah, you know, we were just bored. So we said, let's just, Sweet. you know, make well, donations to hundreds of organizations. Nothing else to do during COVID. Right. That, that's yeah, what it was. Exactly. Okay. Um, no, this was a, this is a combination project that we did with salesforce.org. And um, they kind of uh, approached us to a degree to, to do this type of research, which is really like a user experience benchmark, looking at the, the front end user experience of, of donors, essentially and email subscribers um, in different countries. So, you know, we've done this type of study where we become a, a donor, we become a subscriber and we track all the communications we receive, sometimes across multiple channels, and we kind of analyze it and compare it against what our research and testing database says is good or bad. We've done it in Canada and the US primarily. They're saying, this would be great to apply this to other, you know, other countries and other markets. And we said, that'd be awesome. It's one of the best ways to get like ideas and inspiration is like get out of your own stuff, you know, whether it's a different industry or different country. And so the exciting part of this was, yeah, let's see what the Netherlands is doing. Let's see what Germany is doing. Let's see what Australia is doing. Like, what can we learn from these different organizations? So the, the end goal was to establish this kind of user experience benchmark on a more global scale. And then selfishly, we just get to find ideas and opportunities to improve fundraising along the way. That's very cool. So I'm, I'm particularly curious, kind of two areas that I'm most interested in learning about are related to the email opt-in experience and the donation page process um, for the organizations you studied. Have those evolved for the better since the last time you looked at this kind of stuff? Or what, what, are you, what did you find? Well, that's, that's the thing is we don't know uh, because we haven't done this in other countries. So the idea is okay, that we can, you know, we've established the benchmark now. And so maybe a few years from now, we could you know, redo it and use the same methodology and actually see progress or not. Because for example, like we couldn't even sign up for email 27% of the time globally, like just could not complete it. Most often it's because we couldn't find it. That was the main really? reason is just, 
it either didn't exist. Some organizations don't have an email opt-in full stop, okay. but a lot of times it was, you know, buried under about us news publications. And our research methodology was like, no one's, no one's doing that. You know, they're not going to hunt that long, that hard to get your newsletter. So if you don't find it in a relatively realistic amount of time, then for all intents and purposes, you don't have an email sign up. So hmm. like, that's a really high number. We had some outliers, Brazil and Mexico were especially difficult. But even if you remove them, it goes down to about 82%. So we're still talking about, you know, 18% of the time for organizations that were $10 million in revenue of up for the most part, couldn't find out where to sign up or something was broken. Hmm. Now, I hope that that's a number that will be less, you know, five years from now, two years from now, and that that number is less than if we would have done this five years ago or, or you know, two years ago. But we really, you know, don't know. Where we do know is in the US where we've been kind of doing these types of studies for a number of years. We did the first one in, in 2014. And where we see the most progress is definitely in tech, right? So the kind of reduction of friction, which I think we'll talk about later, um, the kind of ease of experience, for sure, we've made progress in those things, easier to find, easier to complete. Not that there's not more room for improvement. Where there's almost been no real progress is kind of why should I sign up? Why should I give you my email in the first part? That's where we've seen very little change in terms of how much copy people use or how strong of a reason there is to sign up. Similarly, on the donation side, uh, where we haven't seen a ton of progress in terms of really getting better at nailing down our message and why you should give. And so that's an overgeneralization, but those are a couple of things that we kind of have seen in the U.S. in particular. Interesting. Bray, you talk, talk about value proposition. I mean, is that really the problem here? Have, have nonprofits not done a good job? Uh, worldwide in identifying the offer or the need? Yep, that's, basic, that's basically it. You know, so for us in the research process, the, the value proposition question is, why should I give to you or sign up with you as opposed to another organization or not at all? And so that's kind of like the question that we look at when we answer, when we look at their donation page or their website on why should I um, sign up for email? And then we look at a few different factors that you can use and to kind of answer that question. So there's like appeal, you know, why would you want this in the first place? Why would you want to give? Why would you want to sign up? Credibility, why do I trust you or believe you that you can actually, you know, do what you say? Exclusivity, you know, who else is doing this? Um, there's a number of organizations that have a generic newsletter. Why are, is yours any different? Or, you know, there's a number of organizations trying to serve the homeless. Why should I, you know, donate to you? And then clarity. And just do I just fundamentally understand what I get when I sign up for email or what my donation does. And so those are kind of the, the lens factors that we look at. And so for some things like email signup, we'll have the researchers score appeal and exclusivity from zero to two, low to high. And then you actually multiply those two numbers together to get this more unified metric, what's called the only you factor. And it's a more unified score of what a strong reason to give you their email is. And this is a methodology that was developed by MechLabs, a, a for-profit research firm we've kind of taken and adapted to the nonprofit space. So it's trying to create more obje objectivity in the, in the fairly subjective area. Um, but those are like the factors that go into it. And it's, it just, I mean, it comes back to we're, we're not doing a good job of telling the story, are we? Yeah, no, that, that's exactly it. And, and one of the correlating factors is we don't use copy. Um, it, there's kind of a myth of sorts that, you know, like people don't read and um, no one wants to do copy. Let's use videos. Uh, let's use images and all of our research on the testing and experimentation side, for the most part, says that that's wrong. <laughs> no images, no videos, text only, less design, 
are the things that often boost response rate. I'm not talking mm-hmm. about engagement pieces, but when we're talking about conversion, um, the more that you introduce videos, it actually slows people down. The more you use images, the less control you have over their perception of what that image is saying. You know, you and I can look at the same image and have two totally different outcomes of what that image represents, right? You, you use a girl versus a boy, you know, color, gender, race, whatever it might be, happy, sad. There's all these factors that go into images that humans extract value from that we don't know enough about. So generally it's like, just get away from the problem and don't use an image at all. So like the average nonprofit used one sentence, 1.1 sentences to communicate why you should sign up for email. Wow. That's pretty, that's pretty hard to do. That's pretty hard to communicate hey, value in one sentence, you know? For an old direct mail guy like me, the, <laughs> the quote that keeps coming to my head is copy is king. And that's what I hear you saying. Yeah. Yeah. And there's always, uh, I think it's a John Wanamaker quote, you know, that's like, um, uh, or maybe it's, maybe it's not a John Wanamaker quote. Um, people, people don't read advertising um, or people read advertising. They don't read bad advertising, right? Or it's like <laughs> pe- people read copy. They don't read bad copy. I'm pretty sure I butchered the source of that quote as well as the quote, but the principle uh, <laughs> remains a, a strong one. Tell anybody. Yeah, there you go. Um, and we see the same thing on donation pages. It's counterintuitive, but generally speaking, again, you need a reason to give. And about 30% of organizations have a naked donation page, no copy at all. So you're relying solely on the donor's innate motivation and momentum reaching that page to carry them through the transaction process. And then you have got no ability to influence average gifts one time or monthly. You know, it's all on the donor at this point when you don't use copy, not just once, but throughout the process. So yeah. that, that's a okay. big so finding. Video, so video and graphics should reinforce the copy, but not the other way around. Correct. Yeah. And, and what we generally find with video is that it's actually quite slow, right? You, you, if you bury the value in a video, you've got to stop and click play. And now you got to watch. And now you got to wait. And there's this story and the sun rises over the mountains and whatever it is. Whereas most people are actually moving quite quick and looking to make a transaction, whereas copy is quite scannable. You can extract value very quick and go on to, you know, where you're going to go. Videos are hugely, hugely valuable. It's just on a conversion page. Often it's, it's, it's not advisable. Yeah. I mean, for, for somebody like me, I, I lose attention after about three seconds, right? So <laughs> if I've got to sit through a, even a 15 second reel, I'm done and I'm going to go make my next cup of coffee or something, you know? Yeah, we've run tests where we actually just transcribe the video and put the, the text from the video on the donation page and tested it against the actual video and saw a 580% increase when we removed the wow. video and just used transcribed text. Now Say that's an ex- that again. <laughs> it, was, it was 580%. It's an extreme example. Don't get me wrong. It's not like you can do that and just you know, expect to see that in your fundraising, but it's a pretty you know, shocking example. And um, this is why testing is so important because you can read a lot of blogs and a lot of people saying video, 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 and they're partly right. It is amazing. Video is great for engagement and cultivation and storytelling. But in certain areas, like later on down the, the donor funnel, or what we say at the top of the donor mountain, when you're focused on conversion, it can often be a, a big negative. Well, you touched on something a little bit ago, and we let you scoot through it quickly and, and not expound on it but I can't get it out of my head. And that is donor page friction. Talk to me about friction. Uh, What do you mean by that? I've I've heard you say that before, but uh, but define it for our our audience. So um, friction is basically anything that slows or stops people from from taking an action, um, often on a page, so an email signup or a donation. 
Um, it can be physical. It can be literally like the number of clicks or the number of page loads or the number of steps. But more often than not, it's, it's a psychological thing. You know, there's different types of friction. One of them is like uh, decision friction, for example. Um, it's actually surprising how many decisions we ask donors to make just to make an online gift, right? Should you put in your information? Um, do you want to provide your phone number or not? How much should you give? How often should you give? What email do you use? Like things that we kind of take for granted, there's actually a lot. So the more that we introduce things like, which fund do you want to give to? And here's a drop-down list of 289, which we've seen, literally seen. I have seen a, a donation page like that in my life. Right? Yes. Like that's that's a decision. Probably at my place, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, uh, no shame, no judgment on this. I don't know. Um, you know, like that's a, that's the uh, decision friction point. And then if you make people make a decision with equally weighted options and a number of them. That's a worse type of decision friction. You know, if you have four funds and one of them is pre-selected, it's still a decision, but it's less cognitive load. So I'm more likely to make a decision where if it's too much, we all just shut down, you know? So that's like one form of friction, but there's distraction friction. Are there other calls to action like email signup? Why is an email signup on your donation page? Or go start a fundraiser. Like, why do you want me to start a fundraiser? I'm on a donation page. Those are distraction frictions. Form field friction is a massive one where you ask and require for non-essential information. So the most common one is phone number. That's what we saw in the study. It's what we see every time where requiring a phone number on the, our testing side, we've seen can decrease giving up to 50%. So then the question for you, the fundraiser is, can you get that value back basically by some type of phone-based strategy, right? But if you require a phone number, you will lose donors. It is unequivocal at this point. That is a form of friction. We found if you make it optional, it has no impact on conversion. But, you know, so the more form fields that you make required, it increases form field friction. So there's all these different types of friction. Um, and I'm not in the camp of like, we need a frictionless experience, right? Because people would say reading copy could be a friction. If we go fully frictionless, then it also goes fully valueless. You know, there are ways where we can add friction. There's studies where if you ask someone to reflect like, what are your values in life? And then you ask them to make a gift. They're actually more generous because they pause and reflect. They want to be a good person, you know? So there are times where actually introducing small elements of friction with a purpose can increase giving. And for sure, we know having a reason to give, you know, that they have to interact with increases giving. So it's not just about removing all friction. It's about removing unnecessary, unbeneficial friction. And uh, we, we see that there's still ample room to, uh, to remove those elements. So I've got a follow-up for you on that. What about friction on the technical side? So, you know, I've been on a couple of nonprofit sites where I've gone to either sign up for an email program or, or to give. And I find that when I click whatever the button is, you know, sign up or donate, you know, I, I just get the spinning circle of death for, for what feels like eternity. How does that kind of, you know, load speed and things like that, does that have the same kind of impact? It does. Yeah. I don't know the exact uh, equation off the top of my head, but it is something like for every second that a page takes to load, there's like a 10% drop in conversion. And again, I don't know if that's the exact ratio, but sure. it is directly correlated, you know, like anything less than, you know, instant, basically you start to see a drop off. Okay. And then these things get compounded if you go to link out, right? So some donation tools, you click donate on the .org page, and then you go into new tab, new window, donation tool page. Sure. That You lose some people there. It's a trust security factor. 
Um, and then if that takes a long time to load, so the friction factors actually all work together. That's one of the things. It's not just like, you know, this friction factor, this friction factor, they all add up. You know, if you've got multiple steps and it takes a long time to load, well, that's extra friction. And if you're on a mobile device now, it gets compounded because you're moving even quicker. So that's where those types of things are, are huge. And that's where a lot of our um, disdain and frustration isn't so much with the nonprofits, but it's often with, you know, technology providers. Nonprofits shouldn't be the ones optimizing some of these things like yeah. what technology companies and software should really be able to do. Uh, and that's frustrating when they don't. <laughs> so, so friction kind of works as an inverse, maybe not corollary, but comparison to, to like optimization, uh, conversion optimization testing, right? You can get, you know, you can accumulate improvement by doing optimization testing and fixing things one by one. But at the same time, you're saying that, you know, if you have seven different instances of friction, it's not that you're going to have one impact, you're going to have the cumulative effect of all of that. Yes, generally huh. speaking, yeah. Okay. You, you never just see like one element of friction and we remove this one element of friction. They're often always linked. You know, the more form fields that you require, the more that you're more likely to run into what's called field layout friction, where if you use like vertical space instead of horizontal space, it looks and feels longer, which means you're less likely to start, less likely to complete. So it's harder to use vertical space and things look longer for field layout if you have more form fields. So like those two are linked. If you have more okay. steps, you know, it's more likely sure. that someone gets distracted. You know, <laughs> like they, they it's, it, they're all kind of related. We just try to break them out to make it a little bit more useful to understand the, the individual friction elements. Sure, that makes sense. So let's move and talk a little bit about email. You know, I, I know you guys looked at a lot of things in the email space. I'm curious to know what you found around like, are organizations fully utilizing it as a channel, uh, the, the ways it, it can be most effective? And what did you see about the overall experience from the organizations that you studied? So, I mean, the short answer is no, I don't think any organizations fully, <laughs> okay. fully utilizing it. And that's not necessarily, you know, like a, a, a negative thing or to say everyone's doing it poorly. It's just email is an unbelievably powerful thing that, mm. that we can all do a better job of harnessing and we're getting more sophisticated. So I was talking to Jeff Giddens, our president, and how we have uh, one of our clients is now doing basically like a a 50 email cultivation drip series every year hmm. where every 10 days uh, a cultivation email goes out sequentially and all of that content is all past blog posts and ebooks and high performing things in the past and just like new donors haven't seen any of that stuff so you know why try to create all this brand new stuff and just take all your best hits and maybe you only have 15 best hits if you can spread those out and make sure that you have these cultivation touch points, things that we know are absolutely paramount to second gift, donor retention, lifetime value, engagement, connection, loyalty, all these things that we know drive longer term engagement are huge. So just plan it, make sure they get something, you know, every 10 days, and then you build in your more, you know, time relevant campaigns kind of in and around those. Like it's not that hard to actually do that with tools that we have today. It's, it's more of a question of like, do you understand the value of cultivation? Do you have sure. buy-in? You know, do you have that type of thing? So all that to say, no, organizations aren't fully utilizing it. And that's actually one of the things that we noticed is after 60 days, very few organizations actually sent a cultivation email, more so in, in European countries than the US. The US email volume is actually a lot higher than other countries. So the US sent more solicitations, more cultivation, uh, more emails on average, more emails over time. So that's kind of 
one of the unique features of the U.S. compared to some of the other countries. But even even in the U.S., you know, cultivation drops over time. So that's that's one of the things that we find um, is an area of improvement is just continuing to deliver non-asked content well after you thank them for their gifts. And we've seen this time and time again in studies where maybe there's a stewardship plan, maybe there's a thank you plan, but you know, as time goes on, the cultivation uh, kind of drops off. One follow-up, Brady, on that is. Um, do you think, and, and, and this may be U.S. specific, um, but with the volume of emailing going out, how much of that is actually being delivered, and and what's going on in the industry that's stopping deliverability? Um, it, it's it's been a concern of mine. I, I'm just not sure people are even getting the stuff we're sending. Yes, that that's a that's a massive uh, issue. We kind of call it like the the dirty secret that no one talks about when it comes to the email. Um, and, and it varies from organization to organization, how much, you know, your deliverability is or how much inboxing you get, but there's a variety of factors that go into that a lot more technical than I can even understand and go into. But one of the biggest things to know is the biggest way to improve deliverability is to focus on engagement. You know, email service providers look at, are people engaging with the emails that you send or not? And if they're not, they penalize you. And if you are, you get rewarded. So there are other things like if you use heavily designed HTML images, if you use text on top of an image, that's a red flag for spam filters, you know, things like that. But really engagement's the main thing to be focusing on. So there's then applications to that. So what we'll often do for fundraising campaigns is we'll do segments based on engagement. We'll send the email in the morning to the most engaged people and then kind of in 30 minute or hour waves, we'll send to less and less engaged people to kind of trick the email service providers to see, wow, this is a highly engaged email. We should definitely deliver this right away to people's inboxes, right? That's not something you can do all the time, but for appeals, that's it's one strategy. The bigger thing is like data hygiene. You know, For the most part, if someone hasn't opened or clicked an email in, in three months, definitely six months, they're basically gone. You know, It's kind of the same thing we see in, in donor retention. If someone hasn't made a second gift in whatever your numbers are, 16 months, you know, 18 months, they're, they're basically dead to you, you know, right. it's the same kind of thing in email it just happens a lot quicker. So that's why these more front loaded um, communication plans, the danger of only sending one long newsletter a month, someone just misses a couple of those. And now they're basically in an inactive segment, sending more emails more frequently that are more concise, always optimizing for high engagement opens and clicks. Um, that's where our, our strategy sending from an individual as opposed to an organization, kind of removing some branding elements, has more personal feel. Like these are all tactics that work in fundraising, but we've seen leads to engagement. Engagement helps lead to deliverability. Deliverability leads to fundraising. If more people see your email, more people have the chance of actually giving via email. So it's actually a huge, huge thing. And a lot of organizations just aren't caring about data hygiene. They just, we got emails, we keep them, we keep emailing. <coughs> Where really you should be trying to react. Hey, you haven't opened an email in 30 days. What can we do differently? You know, hey, it's been six months now. Uh, we're going to remove you from our list. If you'd like to stay on, please click this button. Those types of things because it's hurting everyone on your email file, not just the people who don't receive emails. It's the people right. who do receive emails. It hurts them too. Right. So it's a, it's a massive, massive, massive issue. It really is. And do you think it's a, a mix of text emails sprinkled in with some graphics? Uh, I, I know a lot of the emails we're doing are very heavy graphics, so we're probably hurting ourselves with that. 
Yeah, maybe. I think like anything, it's not only do this or only do that. I think that we all get into dangerous worlds if we, you know, get into that binary element. I think what we see is in this study, like 99.9% of the emails that we received of the 5,800 had a design element in them. And when we look at emails, there's way more um, momentum and uh, status quo around heavily designed emails than stripped down personal. So that's partly why we'll often talk about send more personal emails, right? And this is, again, the triangulation of we see in our research, even newsletters with no design, get more clicks, opens, and engagement than the heavily designed ones. So one, it saves you time, too. You don't have to design that whole thing. Deliverability, better. And clicks and engagement. We see it all the time in fundraising response. And then we look at 5,800 emails or 2,700 in the U.S. and see like 80 to 90% of them have a bunch of design elements. So you as a nonprofit, where can you most stand out and improve is probably not sending designed emails. Not to say you should never send a design email. It's saying this is how you can prioritize some of your time to improve and optimize your fundraising. Right? That's kind of uh, our approach. Good input. Talk to me about um, you know, what you're seeing with, I, I assume it's growth worldwide in monthly giving. Um, we call it sustainer here in the U.S., um, but, uh, but where it's almost membership-based giving, uh, uh, make that donation uh, and uh, give and forget about it, <laughs> and it just keeps giving and giving and giving. Uh, do people like to give that way now? Is that more prevalent? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the data that I've seen um, in like the donor, donor-centric folks have a sustainer summit that has some really, really rich data that looks at, you know, billions of giving and looking at it for a decade and um they've seen like digital acquired recurring donors just you know skyrocket it's 86 up over 86 percent over the past five years and uh over the last couple of years it's like over 200 percent and it kind of crossed over this this kind of nexus where more people are signing up to become new recurring donors than upgrade that used to be the, the path you know give a one-time gift kind of nurture cultivate and then get an upgrade more people are just subscriber right away. And so I think a lot of the, the playbooks that especially maybe older direct mail playbooks that we had are less and less and less relevant in today and on the digital space. So things that we've even tested five years ago, defaulting to a monthly gift, not being super effective, you get some cancellations, you maybe lose some donors are increasingly becoming more and more effective because consumer behavior is more open to that. Whereas in the past, it maybe was like, how dare you like default me into giving every month? I don't want to, you know, people do subscription banking, subscription, giving subscription, everything now. So consumer behavior is tilted that way. So that strategy is now a lot more likely. And that's something that folks in Europe, honestly, are, are have been way ahead of, of the U S in particular um, Canada to a lesser degree is focusing on recurring. And so what's interesting is as we find some of these things like defaulting to a monthly gift in a tabbed environment, not like a checkbox, um, suggesting a lower recurring donation amount uh, as opposed to starting with a higher amount in your gift array. Like we've found these tests um, allowing people to give via EFT or giving their bank. Only about 30% of organizations in the US do that. Like these are all things that we're testing into finding, oh yeah, it does help. And then we do this study and look at like Netherlands and the UK in particular. And they, they're doing all this stuff. They've already figured all this stuff out, you know, <laughs> allow people to give directly via, via bank. They have like 99% market penetration for giving via bank on their forms, whereas we're at like 30%. Huge increase in um, donor retention, decrease in transaction costs. Why we are so far behind there, I do not know. It makes zero sense to me for recurring. 
defaulting to recurring, you know, those types of things. They've already, and, and uh, Laura suggested gift amount. So we actually took the gift arrays, converted them all to USD, converted them to the grass, gross national income per capita so that we could compare country to country and actually found that the UK and the Netherlands have a smaller suggested first gift for recurring because they figured out you get more recurring donors. It doesn't actually negatively impact average gift that much. And the lifetime value far supersedes the donors that you maybe would have lost. So all that to say, there's a lot of room to improve around monthly giving, especially in the US, especially because kind of the winds of consumer behavior are really blowing in that direction. So, um, you know, the, the time is nigh. Brady, I'm, I'm curious, you said that in the UK, I think you said Netherlands, they have a smaller initial gift offer. Like, scale that for me. Is it a dollar difference? Is it $20 difference? I mean, what, what does that different differential look like? Yeah, it's, it was like um, uh, 10 euros or, or 5 euros, even down to 5 euros. Okay. okay. Uh, whereas in the US, it would be more like $15 US. So we're not sure. talking about like huge, huge differences. And I'll have to double check the, the exact um, you know, data. So it's not overly, um, yeah, it's not like the hugely, hugely significant. Um, whereas like default was significant. Like the Netherlands is four times more likely to default to monthly than the United States. Whereas the gap between suggested recurring amount was, was much less than that. You know, we're talking maybe 50% different. Okay. Um, and what we found at least is in, in kind of our methodology, what you want is you want a bunch of little micro yeses all throughout the whole giving process. You know, the, the choice to give online isn't yes or no. It's yes, 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 yes. You know, there's all these little decisions. And one of them is actually when you hit the gift array. And if you start it too high, some people go, I can't give 30 bucks a month. I'm out. Whereas if you start it lower at 10, and then if you pre-select something like 30, they see 10 and go like, I could give, oh, what's this one that's pre-select? Oh, it's 30. I could do 30. <laughs> right. So that's what you're trying to do is, is kind of get this micro yes. And that's what other people have tested into reverse, reverse arrays and other things. Um, a lot of our testing and suggestions about risk reduction. And our bias is always to what gets us more donors. If we get more donors, we believe we can communicate, cultivate, engage, and have programs to continue to, to keep them. If, if you feel like you don't have those programs and you just need to get as much money as you can right away, that's a different type of optimization strategy, one that we wouldn't you know, necessarily recommend. But um, so, you know, again, we're not talking about $1 suggested recurring amounts where you're probably losing money when you throw in transaction fees. But we are saying, if you're starting at 30, 40, trying to get a higher average gift, you're probably losing a bunch of people who would make a recurring gift. You know, it's this whole concept of recurring. Um, and, and you mentioned, I mean, right out of the chute, putting that in, option in front of people. Um, what are some other things that you look at with new donors? Well, with recurring, one of the other big things is, is very few organizations have a reason to make a recurring gift. It was about 19% in our study. And so even when organizations kind of defaulted, most often it's kind of, you know, a checkbox or make this gift monthly. But that's not, again, a value proposition. It's not a reason for me to make a monthly gift. It's a, it's a financial option for me to pay differently, you know? So instead of just simple things, even like, you know, if you have a dynamic gift array, like what the $25 a month could do, or just like, you know, this, this money every month will lead to mission achievement. You know, we've seen some pretty basic copy that can lead to an increase 
in selecting it. It's just kind of like a subtle nudge towards why someone should make a recurring gift. And that's the overarching thing, whether you're asking for someone to share something on Facebook, make a recurring gift, every single human being on the planet needs a reason to do something. Even if they don't tell you that they do, they do. And it could only be one sentence. It could be five paragraphs. That's where like testing and optimization is important, but we know humans need reasons to do things. And so if you want someone to do something, clearly giving them a reason is, is really key. Um, we didn't get into a lot of like the downstream, how soon did they ask for a recurring gift? It's too complicated, honestly, and across 5,800 emails, it's, it's just too much. But in a different study we, where we looked at a sample of about 50 emails, um, we found that only 18% of email solicitations asked for a monthly gift. So, mm. you know, even during the, the one-time flow, it's not very prevalent, it's not defaulted, it's not focused. But then even when we get into asks, it, it wasn't that common. And when we looked at 60 or so direct mail pieces, it was actually only like 2% asked for a monthly gift. Again, having the option versus asking for is different. So having make my gift monthly, great. But in the copy and in the reply device, it was all geared towards a one-time gift. And so it's just, it's interesting. Again, if you're like, oh, we're not really growing recurring. It's like, well, you don't really focus on recurring. You know, right. you really don't. If you look at your own messaging and copy and website and stuff, it's not a priority to you. And so it's not a priority to your donor. So it sounds so simplistic, but that's, that's honestly the biggest thing is, understand the lifetime value data, work it all the way back, make recurring a priority, and then it'll find its way into a lot of your communications and website and direct mail and things like that. What about uh, new donor welcome series? Did you do any measurements there? It's funny. So we have a, a next after fellow from the Institute of Sustainable Philanthropy over in the UK, who is, is hired to help advance kind of our research in depth. And I just had a call with her before this. And she's working on a welcome series project. So what's really difficult with welcome series is they're impossible to identify actually within a data set. You know, it's not like some flag that is welcome series versus not or automated versus not. You can get closer and make some guesses, but, you know, building on assumptions is, isn't great. So what we did do is we looked at how many emails, how many organizations sent uh, more than two emails in 14 days as mm -hmm. not a guarantee that they have a welcome series but as an indicator of an organization that, you know, and the number is still surprisingly low. It's a little bit higher in the U.S., but, you know, we're talking about less than, you know, 20, 30% of organizations. So some do automation and here's a thank you and then a welcome and that's it. We did see quite a few two email kind of series, but what we, we often do five kind of email welcome series and then say the minimum is kind of, kind of three. Again, the whole methodology is say fewer things, be more focused more frequently. That applies to your welcome series, applies to your newsletter. And that's kind of where I think we need to be kind of progressing. So you, all that to say. Will you make an ask in those, in those three to five touches? So it's interesting. Again, uh, what we found on new subscribers, um, we basically tested our way into not asking. Now, the caveat behind that is we have this model where we deliver free content and say, here's an ebook, uh, an online course, a petition, uh, a tool, a template for you, you know, for your kids, for your marriage, for um, knowledge, whatever it might be, deliver value, people fill it out to get it. And then on the confirmation page, there's like, thank you so much, Roy, this ebook is on its way. Hey, while you're here, did you know there's other parents struggling with this very issue? You know, this is, you know, problem ABC. Would you consider making a $50 gift to make sure that this resource gets in the hands of other people and can help, you know, equip more families or whatever it is? 
and it's like an instant donation ask. And we found that's way more successful. We've seen using that approach get like 900% more conversion in a welcome series than having kind of emails one, two, three, four, and then ask, which is kind of the, the typical way that, that people would do it. Um, so for new donor acquisition for a lot of clients, especially if they have these types of setups, they've tested their way into just not asking, just deliver value, deliver value, deliver value, deliver value. And then there's a passive ask or a softer ask after they receive the value. Um, on the new donor side, we don't have nearly as much experimentation and testing. That's why Sarah, our research fellow is digging into it. So she's doing a deep dive on 30 organizations, 15 of our clients, 15 non-clients to map out very specifically this email, what was in it, what was trying to do, and tie those back to a lot of the research that, you know, Jen Shang and Adrian Sargent have around donor loyalty of, uh, is this, how do we build trust and satisfaction and commitment and communal relationships in these first emails? And so we'll eventually produce something that's like, here's what we suggest as a, a welcome series to do that for new donors. Right. So that's those three to five emails that might be over a two or three week period or? Yeah, up to 30 days. Yeah, uh, up to 30 days. And yeah. you pull them out of the regular solicitation process until after they get the series? Correct. Yep. Yep. They would. And, and uh, one of the things that I learned from attending like a-, a Man, I'm doing it all wrong. Um, <laughs> well, I, I mean- Andrew, I just want to thank you for this session. It's really <laughs> helped me. And <laughs> Brady will send you a bill later today. <laughs> I'm just oh, saying thanks, this is what Brady. our research suggests. Maybe, maybe, yours, maybe yours is different. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we do simplified welcome series too. Like there's a temptation to be like, oh, if you came in via this offer or you made, you donated to this fund or this mm -hmm. campaign, yeah. and then soon you end up with this labyrinth of like 18 different welcome series. And it's a nightmare to keep up technologically. It's impossible to get enough data to figure out what's working or not. And this is a real aha moment. Uh, we're doing a training in, in Spain for Save the Children and Greenpeace presented on their new donor welcome series, multi-channel. And they have these like eight different like petitions and funds basically ways in and they've streamlined it all the way down to you get one of these two series. So these four entries go to this and these four entries go to this. And I mean, that's a very sophisticated, advanced, non, you know, limited organization for the most part, who's just figured out we can't manage eight custom welcome series. And I see organizations go down that path all the time of like, well, these donors get this and these donors get this. And it's just, it's too complicated. So right. to find just even new subscriber, new donor, and then you maybe tweak the first one based on where they come in. And that's, you know, about as much as many organizations. Yeah, it's so hard for me. I want to throw everything at them with the kitchen sink up front. <laughs> and uh, I hear you saying the same thing, throw value at them up front, not, not ask. Yeah. And it's just engagement. If, if the one thing you take away right, is like, if all we focus on in our email programs is engagement, we'd all raise more money. And so like, do they really need to know here's about us and our history and our founding? Maybe some of that's useful, but just say, Hey, what, why'd you, why'd you give and ask them to reply right back to you? You know, we'd like to hear more about you and what you're interested in. Take this quick survey so we can, you know, better serve you. Um, were you satisfied with your giving experience? You know, questions and those types of things as well as things that people like to get is advancing their own knowledge. And, you know, people come online to get, not to give this. So how do you give them stuff that they can get? You know, if we just took a little bit more of that approach through all of our emails, I think we'd all be better off. So side note question for you on this. Um, and I'm all for the idea of simplifying. I've seen some of these decision trees before on welcome series and it's kind of blinding. Um, what about 
a, an onboarding or welcome series when someone makes that decision to become a monthly sustainer? Do you see many organizations doing that? And have you looked at that at all? Haven't looked at it. Don't know. Don't know. So <laughs> hard to hard to answer. Um, I think it'd be great. Sure. Um, cool. Especially in that case where you're not fighting as hard for second gift or upgrade monthly, you can really just build that relationship, be personal, say, thank you so much. You know, That's why really did you point. make your recurring gift? Like, you know, just really, yeah, really just focus on pure relationship. Again, we should always be doing that, but yeah. even more so in that scenario where it's like, you've basically got the end destination for most donors now. You know, uh, you should still give them additional one-time gifts. We, we know that that makes up about 20% of a recurring donor's value is sure. giving to other things. You shouldn't not deprive them of the opportunity to support other projects, but it's not like you're as calculated, you know, how do we get the second gift and upgrade them? So lean into that and just take it off the table and just really go in on engagement, you know? Yeah, I love that. Okay, so we're about out of time. Let, let, let's end on this. From everything that you've seen uh, in the research, you know, kind of boil it down for us. What what does it at a macro level mean to you? And what kind of recommendations are you making to organizations based on what you guys learned? Yeah, I mean, uh, go read the report because we, we try to make it really simple. Like here's the eight eight key things and they turn into actions really, really quick. And one of them is like test your forms. There's probably stuff broken on your site and you just don't know it. So make a donation to yourself, sign up for emails yourself once a month, once a quarter, at least twice a year because you'll find those things. And then you'll also see things like, why is our annual report from 2016, you know, still on the site? You know, we got to, we got to take that down, you know? So like, that's an, that's an easy one. Just the idea of like, everyone needs a reason to do something, whether it's sign up for email or make a donation. And of those kind of four factors, appeal, credibility, exclusivity, and clarity. Clarity is the one that we always teach and train and focus is like, sometimes it's hard. How do we differentiate, you know, our homeless organization versus their homeless organization? And just be clear with what your homeless organization does. And that's the best starting point. You know, we talk a lot in like acronyms and opaqueness, just very clear and simply what, what do I get when I sign up with you? Very clear and simply, what does my donation do when I give to you? It sounds so simple, but again, we, we do these studies and less than half the time, it was clear what we would do if we signed up for email, you know, so just be clear, reduce unnecessary friction. That's an easy one for the most part. Like, do you really need to know what my birthday is for me to make a donation? No. So don't ask for it. You know, those types of things. And then focus more on recurring. That's, that's the like less tangible, actionable one. There's a bunch of things that go into that. But, you know, continually we get new studies, 2020 benchmarks coming out and donor retention, donor retention rates, they're, mm -hmm. they're not improving. So part of it is we are not focusing enough on engagement and of these things that drive donor loyalty. But part of it is we are asking people to give in ways that are not conducive to long-term engagement. So Focus more on long-term engagement, both in engaging in emails and even transaction methods like recurring and giving via bank. So. Great. So that report can be accessed at globalonlinefundraising.com. Uh, Brady, how, how do folks get in touch with you if, if they want to connect directly? I mean, I'm, I'm out there. I'm easy to find. You can just Google me probably, but um, I love being on LinkedIn right now. That's, that's a great place. I know you and I, Andrew, we connect on there a lot. So yep. if you want to just go to LinkedIn and search for Brady Josephson, I, I think I'm one of the only ones. Uh, otherwise, you can find all of our other research, uh, nextafter.com. Um, we've got some, we actually have a donation page friction tool that's out there now with Fundraise Up where you can score yourself and your own donation page 
on 25 different questions and see how you compare. And Very cool. we're, con we're constantly producing these research studies and tools to help organizations improve their fundraising. So nextafter.com is the, the best place to find those. Awesome. Hey, man, thanks again for being here. Appreciate you sharing the insights. Thank you so much. Yeah, good to see you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.